This is Joshua Scurfield, Calibre Audio's CD production assistant, welcoming you to the autumn 2020 edition of the Calibre Echo. This audio newsletter contains seven tracks. The last few months have been unsettling and full of challenges for everyone as we all try and navigate the effects of coronavirus. Throughout the pandemic, we have been working hard to ensure we keep the service running at a time when there is such a great need for it, and we hope the audiobooks we provide have given you some comfort and pleasure throughout the restrictions. In this issue of The Echo, our new director of fundraising, Neela James, introduces herself and lets you know the recent news from the fundraising team. In book news, we are delighted to announce a partnership with the National Paralympic Heritage Trust as we have recorded into audio The Spirit of Stoke Mandeville, The Story of Sir Ludwig Gutman by Susan Goodman. We also highlight some great authors and titles in our collection to acknowledge Black History Month, which runs throughout October. Plus narrator John Hobday gives us his review of a book he has recorded for us recently. Finally, we have an interview with author Kate Griffin talking about her engrossing mystery stories featuring Kitty Peck, set in the music halls of the Victorian era. To begin with, we hear from Neela James, our new Director of Fundraising. Hello, I'm Neela James, Director of Fundraising here at Calibre Audio. I'd like to take this opportunity to introduce myself and to update you on some fundraising news. I joined the Calibre team in April during lockdown. I bring over 20 years experience of leading fundraising teams in various charities, including RNIB, Sense, Cancer Research UK and the Wildlife Trust. I am really looking forward to using my knowledge and experience to grow fundraising income at Calibre so that we can continue to improve our service to our members and also to reach many more people who would benefit from our service. The coronavirus pandemic has affected everyone in some way, whether it's losing a job or a loved one or losing the freedom to go out and socialise, which I know has left many of our members feeling more isolated than ever. As with most other charities, our income has been badly affected and one of my first projects was to launch our COVID-19 fundraising appeal. I was totally blown away by the tremendous generosity that you, our members, showed in your response to our appeal. I was very humbled by the many messages of thanks for continuing our service despite the difficulties of lockdown, as many of you described Calibre as a lifeline. Calibre exists to serve you, but we wouldn't survive without your support. So I'd like to say a huge thank you on behalf of everyone at Calibre to all our members who generously donated an incredible total of £122,000 plus gift aid, which means we've achieved our target of £150,000. This amount would cover all our running costs for a whole month and we are so grateful for all your support. Now that the mornings are feeling chilly and autumn beckons, have your thoughts turned to Christmas yet? There are three important things that I'd like to let you know about. Christmas cards. This year, we're using up our existing Christmas card stock from last year, so please get in touch early if you would like to buy some, as we expect to run out. You can see what's available on our website and shop by visiting www.caliberaudio.org.uk. 
where you can order online or you can place an order by calling 01296 432 339. Please call and let us know if you would prefer us to send you an order form to return by post. Online shopping. If you're a fan of online shopping, there are two websites where you can generate donations from retailers to Calibre. If you usually shop on Amazon, please use smile.amazon.co.uk, which is their charitable website where you can choose Calibre Audio as your favourite charity. Amazon will donate to us as you shop at no additional cost to you. You can also sign up at www.easyfundraising.org.uk where you can choose to do your online shopping as normal and if your retailer is one of over 4,000 who are in the scheme, the retailer will make a small donation to your chosen charity as a thank you. The Big Christmas Challenge. My final Christmas theme mention is for the opportunity to double the value of your donation to Calibre. We are delighted to be one of the charities chosen by The Big Give for their Christmas Challenge this year. This is the biggest match funding event in the UK and raises millions of pounds for charity. The challenge runs from the 1st to the 8th of December and is open to online donations through their website only. We are delighted and hugely grateful to King's Access Technology, who provide our memory sticks, solo and sonic players, for pledging to match the first £3,000 of donation received for this challenge. We are aiming to raise £12,000 to buy 48 new books to add to our collection. We will let members know more details nearer the time. And lastly, I wanted to let you know that we're in the process of producing a new information leaflet about leaving gifts in wills. After looking after those closest to you, leaving a gift in your will to Calibre can help us plan for the future and enables you to ensure that a service you've treasured is protected for future members to enjoy. Here at Calibre, over 30% of our running costs each year are covered by donations left in wills. It is a vital source of income to us. If you would like to receive the leaflet, please call Cherry Squire on 01296 380 558 or email Terry on terry.squire at Thank you. Now we hear from John Hobday, one of our volunteer narrators, with his review of one of the books he has recorded, called The Big Show, by Pierre Klosterman. The Big Show Over the years, I have read many books of the exploits of World War II pilots and aircrew, but few, if any, match up to the realism and sheer grit of Pierre Klosterman's story. His courage and determination as a French Air Force pilot who, with the RAF, continued the fight against his country's invaders, leaves one breathless with admiration. His accounts of the terrible attrition rates of pilots, particularly in his second tour flying Tempests, has not, to my knowledge at least, been so openly documented. How he and his comrades set off day after day, and indeed night after night, against unbelievable odds, knowing that the chances were that they would not return, leaves one full of admiration and wonder. It is indeed one of the most gripping descriptions of aerial combat that I have ever read, and, after all that, the antipathy and dismissiveness 
these brave French pilots received from their own countrymen and overlords at home in France makes their achievements all the more noteworthy. This is indeed a remarkable story of heroism and horror and an account of the camaraderie of men who defeated not only the enemy but their own fear itself, which will remain in your memory long after the reading of the book is finished. If after hearing John's review you would like to borrow The Big Show, then the catalogue number is 13816. Next, I'm here to tell you about our partnership with the National Paralympic Heritage Trust. We are excited to announce that Calibre Audio has partnered with the National Paralympic Heritage Trust to produce the audiobook version of the biography The Spirit of Stoke Mandeville, The Story of Sir Ludwig Gutman, written by Susan Goodman. Professor Sir Ludwig Gutman worked at Stoke Mandeville Hospital, which is local to Calibre's office just outside Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire, where he revolutionised the care of paralysed servicemen introducing a whole new approach to the treatment of tetraplegic and paraplegic patients. He was the visionary founder of the Paralympic movement, with which we are all so familiar, giving athletes with disabilities the opportunity to compete at a world-class level. Listeners will learn about the life and inspirational work of Professor Gutman, CBE, and how the Paralympics were set up, you can hear a taster of the audiobook on our website under News Articles or borrow the whole book with catalogue number 13640. We move on to Denise James, our editorial coordinator, with an article about Black History Month. October is Black History Month in the UK, a time to celebrate the culture, history and achievement of Britain's African and Caribbean communities. Across the country, a wide variety of events are being held, from exhibitions of art and photography to film screenings and poetry workshops. You can see a full list at the Black History Month website. Black History Month .org.uk There are also interviews and short films to enjoy, as well as online history courses to participate in. This year, for the first time, black history is being promoted in a truly novel way. The Black Farmer brand of sausages will be featuring the faces of three notable names in black British history. Mary Seacole, the pioneering nurse of the Crimean War, George Arthur Roberts, a World War I veteran and civil rights campaigner, and Lincoln Orville Lynch, an RAF air gunner who was decorated for his distinguished service in World War II. Book-related features include a tribute to Andrea Levy by Sir Lenny Henry. Sir Lenny 
appeared in the BBC TV adaptation of The Long Song in 2018, playing the head house slave Godfrey. The story is set in colonial Jamaica in the final years of slavery on the island, before it was abolished in 1833. Here at Calibre, we are always happy to use an opportunity to promote black British writers featured in our library. Here are just a few. If you are looking for chiclet or popular fiction, then you can't go wrong with Dorothy Coombson. She has produced several best-selling novels since her third book, My Best Friend's Girl, catalogue number 7393, sold over half a million copies after it became a Richard and Judy summer read. Adele and Cameron's friendship comes to an end when Adele has a child by Cameron's boyfriend. Two years later, Adele is dying and begs her old friend to adopt her little daughter. Author Sarah Collins worked as a lawyer for many years before taking the plunge and becoming a full-time author. Her book, The Confessions of Franny Langton, catalogue number 14057, won the Costa First Novel Award in 2019. Set in Victorian England, it is a gothic romance about the twisted love affair between a Jamaican maid and her French mistress. Award-winning author Carol Phillips was brought up in Leeds and studied literature at Oxford University. His novel, The Lost Child, catalogue number 10835, draws on his upbringing, being set in the shadow of the wild moors of the north of England. It follows the fortunes of Monica, who is cut off from her parents after falling for a foreigner as she struggles to raise her sons. Happiness by Aminata Fauna, catalogue number 13408, on the other hand, is very much a novel of London, where Attila, a Ghanaian psychiatrist, and Jean, an American studying the habits of urban foxes, meet by chance. A powerful novel of loves lost and new, and the hidden side of a multicultural metropolis. Kit Duval, born of an Irish mother and Caribbean father, was brought up in Birmingham. Her novel, The Trick to Time, catalogue number 14058, is set in 1970s Birmingham, where a young Irish girl and a young Irishman embark on a whirlwind romance and marriage before a tragic event tears them apart. You can find lots more information on books by black authors in the Black Lives Matter article on our website, caliberaudio.org. To finish off, Emma Scott, our Head of Literature and Audiobook Production, talks to author Kate Griffin about her work.
Kate Griffin was born within the sound of bow bells, making her a true-born cockney. She has worked as an assistant to an antiques dealer, a journalist for local newspapers, and for the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings. Kitty Peck and the Music Hall Murders, Kate's first book, won the stylist Faber Crime Writing Competition. Kate's maternal family lived in Victorian Limehouse and her grandmother told her many stories of life around the docks, which she used to draw on for her Kitty Peck stories. Kate was speaking at Welland Garden City Library as part of Hertfordshire Library's Literature Festival, which was where we caught up with her before her talk. Welcome Kate, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, I'm going to start, if I may, just talking about the main character in your historical crime stories, uh, who's Kitty Peck. And when we first meet her, she's only 17 years old, and I just wondered if I could ask what made you choose a teenager for the main protagonist? Partly, I think, because I knew that in Victorian London, at the end of the 19th century, life was short. So, um, you know, somebody like Kitty probably would have had potentially a lifespan of about 30, 35 at the most. Um, also, people grew up very fast in Victorian London. So Kitty at 17 is probably more like, say, a 25-year-old would be today. But because of her background and her past and things that have happened to her, she's also a curiously naive young woman and she's been quite protected or shielded in some ways so I kind of wanted to make her a character who was young and impetuous and fiery and kind of like kind of like a sword of rightness really righteousness but also somebody who was perhaps kind of sexually naive and sort of personally naive and was navigating her way into a very difficult and very dark society so that's why she's young so she's young and she's old and she's vulnerable as well um, and it was a deliberate decision to make her, because I didn't want her to be a rattled old musical performer, yeah, yeah. which probably somebody of, of 24, 25 probably would have been in, in you know, the real musical age. Kitty's a mu she works in musicals, that's her, that's her background, but they're not like the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> well, she is a, she's a great character, but along with her, there's, a, there's, a, there's actually a, a great cast of characters in the book anyway. And I, I just, as I was reading, I just felt they jump out of the pages at you. Um, so how long does it take for you to, for, for your characters to take shape and, and their backstories to evolve? They all leapt into my head fully formed, and that is a really weird thing. I kind of, Kitty came from a competition that I entered. I entered the Faber and Stylist magazine writing competition, and what they wanted was the first 6,000 words of a crime novel uh, with a strong female protagonist. That's what they asked for. And there was, there was nothing about when it, was, when it could be set or, you know, eras or kind of situations, whether it was going to be a police setting or procedural oh, right. or something like that. Um, and I was persuaded to, to, to take my... And my husband and some friends said, oh, you should have a go at that. So eventually I did. And um, I went down one day and I started writing in our basement where I work. And I really, in my head, I was really clear that what Faber and Stylist wanted was perhaps kind of like a woman police officer who had a difficult marriage and perhaps a problem child or kind of a secret that she was hiding, so kind of like a strongly modern domestic noir setting. I started to write, and what came out was the first chapter of, of Kitty Peck and Musical Murders, which is basically a rattled, opium-addicted crime baroness talking to this kind of quite mouthy dancing girl come slop girl who works in her musical and I honestly don't know where it came from I think there are lots of things as my family came from Limehouse originally so there's that I love the theatre I think there was that um, I love Dickens and Miss Havisham I think there's a kind of a soup song of that in there 
But I, you know, if you if you actually pinned me against a wall and said, where did that come from at that moment? I have absolutely no idea. And I showed it to my husband later on and said, well, I've just written this. What do you think of it? And he clearly was expecting some, you know, modern crime thing. And he just looked up and said, where did that come from? And we both went, I've got no idea. I think some of the best things come that way, though. So. Perhaps, yeah, perhaps. I was at an event recently and I was in the audience and I listened to Ian Rankin. Mm-hmm. And he had this incredible theory, which I think is probably true. He said that whenever any author sits down or writer sits down, or anyone really, I suppose, sits down to write, there are possibly like a million stories scudding around in the air above their heads and if you're sitting in the right point at the right moment that story will dash into your head and I, I've kind of held on to that because really I thought that, yeah. wow that's kind of like you know Music halls are obviously a central theme in the stories which were a main form of entertainment at that time in the 1800s um, what was the reason for picking music halls as a, as a venue for the action to Again, I'm not quite sure. I mean, it just all came out. I think I, I'm quite fascinated by the lives of those music hall performers because I think I, I grew up at a time when the good old days was on every Friday and quite often my granny would babysit for me or my nan. No one ever has a nan these days, but she was a nan and she was a good old Londoner and she loved the good old days. So if she was babysitting, she'd let me stay up and watch the good old days and I was allowed to have a little tiny tumbler full of Guinness with her. And she really got into it and she knew all the old songs and things. So it had kind of a very warm memory for me um but of course the and I, I love the costumes obviously you know as a child you see all these people wearing all in the audience they used to wear they used to dress up I think it was filmed at Leeds City Varieties and it was up there people the audience used to dress up in kind of like 19th century costume and kind of like you know military outfits and huge hats and feathers and for a child who loved dressing up it was mm. you know quite a sumptuous thing to watch um, and I think I loved it, but then I kind of, as I got older, I did realise that the, the real musical environment wasn't like the good old days at all. It was incredibly harsh, incredibly rough, incredibly raucous. And then I found out that my family, uh, who lived in the East End, had actually gone to East End music halls. They were poor, and they were my family were poor. Um, and at the end of the 19th century, they were Irish immigrants, and it was a way of escaping a really hard week. You'd spend your tuppence, you'd put your tuppence over the bar, you'd go in, and it was escapism. Yeah. But it was it was raucous, it was rough. The performers often had very short lives. Um, it was actually a place where women could make their money on their own without having you know without kind of having a man to control them. But a woman's life was quite a dangerous life. Um, there was prostitution was always like you know mm. somewhere on the scene perhaps. Alcoholism was rife, um, people got consumption, people became addicted to various drugs and things. Very often the performers would perform at kind of several halls in one evening, so they'd have to either walk between them or rattle between them in a hackney carriage. It was cold, they drank to keep warm. Um, very often they died of stress to the liver, if not venereal disease, before they were 40. And you don't shy away from that in any of the No. All of that is in there. No. It's very, very well, I don't want to kind of, of I don't want to kind of make mm. it, I don't want to gloss over it because, you know, it, it, it is quite horrific, yeah. actually. But um, having said that, the books have a, I hope, a sort of kind of a jokey. Because I do think it's true that if you lived in, you know, Victorian London at the end of the 19th century and woke up every morning, you weren't thinking, poor me, I'm an urchin. What you were thinking was, right, I'm going to get out there, I'm going to live, what am I going to do today? You know, it's kind of, how am I going to make it through? And Kitty's definitely that sort of character, yeah. isn't she? she yeah, yeah she she's is. kind of, yeah. she's. Um, do, do the musicals that you mentioned, like The Comet and the Palace, did they exist or was that just... They, they are made up, so in the books, uh, the books revolve around the, the Carnival, the Gordy and the Comet. And they're the three musicals that are owned by Lady Ginger, and they're kind of a front for her more revolting criminal enterprises, really. Um, but I based it, um, I based all three of them, really, on Wilton's musical in the East End, oh, which right. is the last surviving musical 
you know, in its original condition that you can oh, go I didn't and see. Know there was still you, oh, you have to go. You have, it's oh, fantastic. Yeah. And I went there because in my day job, I, I work, until very recently, I worked for the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings. And uh, we're all about how you repair old buildings and how you look after them and how you conserve them. And just at the time I started, see, this is all just at the time I started writing these books, I had gone on a site visit with a load of surveyors to see a Wilton's musical right at the beginning of its restoration project, really. And they were um, all blokes, and they were all in their hard hats, and they were all wandering around sort of tapping the woodwork and sort of, oh, we put an acroprop here, and, well, we can, we can get rid of that, we'll take up that floor. And I was just looking at the stage. It's got these incredible barley sugar twist, twist columns and this raggy old curtain, and it is literally... It's the size of two tables, the stage. It's a real kind of bar stage. But I was looking at it and thinking, my, my word, you know, the people who've stood mm. there with their rough voices and belted out an audience that was belting stuff back at them because that's the other thing about the musical it wasn't polite it was rough you know the audience was as rough as the people on stage and it was almost like stand-up if you were a man or a woman doing a routine in a musical you had to have an incredible power or an aura or some sort of charisma otherwise you were toast <laughs> you were toast you know so so it's kind of a really it's a kind of a powerful and exciting and quite contemporary in a way environment um, it's not polite, it's not neat, it's, it's not all furs and jewels. It's kind of like, it's struggle, and I, that really appealed to me. Um, I felt that you really get a sense uh, from your books what the Limehouse area of London's like and, and it, what it would have been like in the 1880s. Um, and if, if you forgive me, there's a, a scene um, that I just... There's basically a sentence in the book that I just want to read out to you. So this is a scene from Kitty Peck and the Music Hall Murders. And they're down by the docks. And this just epitomises what, what really what I felt that you did. Um, so it begins, The night was thick with the scent of trade. Every step brought a sharp new tang. Coffee, spice, rum, sweet tar, tobacco, stale wine, and the meaty, fatty smell of wool. If you could bottle the air of the docks, you could carry the world in your pocket. And on reading that, I was just there. I could taste it, I could see it, I could smell everything. And I just wondered how, as an author, you managed to conjure up such a sense of place without kind of experiencing that, because you wouldn't have... Well, maybe I did. My grandfather was a docker. My grandfather, Timo, no-one ever called him Grandad, was a docker, and he worked at the London docks all his life. He had lots of various little jobs, actually. He was a bit like... He was a bit of a Del Boy, really. I think he had quite a lot of little jobs on the go, really. But he worked in the docks, and I remember him... And he used to take me for walks through Wapping when I was very little on a Saturday. And looking back, I think those walks were quite often to collect things from people. (laughs) But he kind of... But he... I remember him saying to me once, and I'm sure that that's where that came from, he said... If you covered your eyes now and asked me where I was, this was back in the 60s, I could tell where I was in Wapping by the smell. Wow. Because yeah. even back then, the, the particular you know, areas had different trades that came in. That's, um, and the other thing that I read, because I did do some research, I don't do a lot of research on my books because I think it can kill them, but um, I read uh, the Night Walks, and I, his name has escaped me, Mayhew, Mayhew's Night Walks. Um, and a bit like Dickens, he used yeah. to kind of like walk around London and then kind of like describe what he'd, what he'd seen and kind of what he'd heard and what he'd smelled. And there was a passage about um, the docks and the trades and the different trades that came in. And it was about the horn sheds and the mutton trade and the wool sheds and the coal, the coal sheds as well. And he was, it was really... I mean, he was writing kind of like quite a straight account, but I, I think I took that and thought, well, what would that be like if you were standing there on that corner and 
smelling all of that. Well, yeah, I I no, I definitely, yeah, that was, I was definitely there. Was, and that's not, that's just one instance. There's lots of instances like that through the books that I just feel, yeah, you, you really um, can picture the, the, the moment um, from oh, what you're saying. Oh, well, um, Kate, thank you very much for talking to oh, us. Um, I can thoroughly recommend your books to our members. Um, as I say, I'm, I'm reading my way through them at the moment. I'm really enjoying them, oh, and I, I think they will appeal to a lot of people. Um, so I hope this encourages them to, to pick up and give them yes, a try. Um, but yeah, <laughs> but thank you very much anyway for giving your time today. Anyway, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. If listening to Kate talk about her writing has made you curious about the Kitty Peck mysteries then we have all four that are in the series so far. They are Kitty Peck and the Music Hall Murders, catalogue number 13272, Kitty Peck and the Child of Ill Fortune, catalogue number 13329, Kitty Peck and the Parliament of Shadows, catalogue number 14085, Kitty Peck and the Daughter of Shadows, Catalogue number 13682. If you want to read more about the history of music halls, gin palaces, and other Victorian pastimes, then why not try the non-fiction title Palaces of Pleasure by Lee Jackson, catalogue number 13490. That concludes this edition of The Calibre Echo, but before we go, we just wanted to say a very big thank you to you all for the lovely messages of support and gratitude you have sent us over the past few months, all of which we really appreciate and keeps us going. In return, we would like to send all of our members our thanks and best wishes for the coming months. We also want to thank you for continuing to send the books back during this difficult time where we appreciate it may not always have been possible to get to a postbox or get someone to post them for you. Please continue to send them back once you've finished with them, and if it is safe for you to do so. Thank you for listening, and if you have any comments on the items featured, please contact Emma Scott at Calibre on 01296 432 339 or email her at emma.scott at uk. Goodbye for now from all of us here, and could I remind you to return this recording to Calibre for other members to borrow. The Calibre Echo was recorded and edited by Kieran Potter. The music was provided with kind permission from Josh Woodward. You can find more of his work on his website, www.joshwoodward.com.